0: You're listening to The Cycling Podcast, Femina.
1: Well, hello and happy new year. Is it too late to say happy new year? I believe it's already... Twenty-fifth of January, Burns Night. So probably, <laughs> probably a little bit late. But this is the first uh, cycling podcast Feminine we've had in the New Year, so you know I have every right to to say it. And joining me uh, today is Denny Gray of the British Continental. Are you celebrating Burns Night, Denny? In any I, way? I
2: I've missed out on that. My neighbours had a ama- an amazing array of whiskies on Burns Night, Ooh. but I, I completely missed out. So yeah, nothing Burns Night related for me, unfortunately.
1: Oh no. Uh, do you know what? Actually, though, my mum claims has only claimed in the last couple of years that we are distantly related to rabbi burns wow but literally she has never said that before (laughs) until the last couple of years so it's questionable joining us today special guest on the pod is cycling commentator presenter and journalist
3: (laughs) sorry rebecca i'm giving the build build up rebecca charlton Thank you so much. <laughs> sorry, so I, to I to did be actually here.
1: something there, where, which actually I've seen you do before, where you're giving someone a really big intro and then you're about to mess up their name, which I, I remember when you were introducing <laughs> Sophie Hercombe of Cycling News and you gave her a big build-up and then you said, Sophie
4: Hercum. <laughs> so oh, it never made the cut. <laughs> to add context to that, I've been a friend and colleague of Sophie Hercombe <laughs> that's Hercombe, for about a decade, so yeah. I don't well, know it's how it first, you know. I don't know. I, I was just saying the words that I almost did. You lost Did you rehearse my name in, just in my, to make sure in my
1: brain? Well, I do edit your show wheel, don't I? Sometimes, Rebecca. <laughs> so I know. I know you've got to say cycling presenter, commentator, and journalist. But uh, nice to be all together. And I was going to say it's the first time we've been together, but it's actually not. Is it because only a few weeks ago? We were all in a McDonald's on Wandsworth Roundabout at about four in the morning.
4: So we, we were.
2: For the listeners benefit, we should explain that <laughs> Becca and I are sharing a mic. Um, she shoved the mic in my direction <laughs> at that point. But, yeah, there was a bit of a, a soiree of cycling journalists, wasn't there, before Christmas? And we ended up in a karaoke bar and then a McDonald's. I don't know if there's anything more we want to add about that.
1: Well, I was going to say, I mean, obviously, Denny, you were a singer-songwriter, weren't you? And so I was expecting a lot of the karaoke. I know I've given a bombshell to Becca and probably I the whole audience. Did just did not there. know this. <laughs> but so we we're, were expecting big things of Denny. Denny chooses park life, right? He's waiting his turn, waiting, seeing it go up and up in the queue as everyone else takes that, theirs. And then another cycling journalist, not going to be named, steals the mic, absolutely destroys the song with yelling. And Denny's just standing in the corner there looking so upset that his Time to Shine singing Blur was totally ripped away from tell him. Tell you what, I,
2: I, I've never felt so loved at that point, Rose, because actually I think you looked devastated. You were <laughs> I was. so annoyed. Well, the problem
1: <laughs> was, <All laughs> the, everyone else was like. Everybody sharing. else
2: was entertained.
1: Everyone else was loving it. So I was kind of like on your side denny so i was looking cross as well
4: I, I have to interject at this point because you two don't know this big reveal i've got this moment on camera <gasps> i videoed the oh look no. between the two of you and then i have you on camera rose um asking me to stop recording you <laughs> putting the camera in oh your no. face um but oh yeah no. it's uh, it's saved on my phone forevermore and we are actually only just just around the corner
1: from that very McDonald's, aren't we? We're just in the Alma in uh, Wandsworth, and they're very off old, old York Road, and they've very kindly turned the music off in this little section to let us record the pod, so we do need to get on with doing that. But I should say, I know lots of people have been asking uh, about Orla and where she is. Orla is just a very busy woman. She'll be back on in no time. She assures me that she's going to try and be back on next month, which would be great to hear from her again, of course, you know we will miss having her and Lizzie Banks also for personal reasons Lizzie has had to step away for the time being but it does mean the shuffle around does mean that we get to hear some new voices uh Becca no
4: pressure Becca I just feel like I should apologize at this point you've got me (laughs) no
1: (laughs) no well luckily we're coming to something that you should have been paying attention to uh, and that is the tour down under because you were commentating on that so hopefully you're paying attention obviously that kicked off the uh women's world tour season for the year started only stage one uh, a sprint finish for ali wollaston stage two assessor jutsch ludwig win which was kind of yes maybe came out of the blue a little bit but um and stage three sarah gigante which we heard you after sarah gigante's win <laughs> we heard you and marty nobly pushing on, even though you were so very emotional about Sarah Gigante uh, and her post-race interview.
4: Yeah, so what you're referring <laughs> to here is, is right. well, Rose, you're saying that I was very emotional and you were questioning... You said you were you're holding back tears,
1: yeah. that's what we heard, yeah.
4: You were questioning if I was being authentic with my level of emotion, <laughs> and I'd just like to clarify that I was, and I was speculating on the fact that perhaps because I'd commentated for three nights through the night <laughs> and then couldn't really get any sleep in, in daylight hours. Um, I was so sleep deprived and so, so taken aback by the victory of Gigante that I was genuinely welling up, pretty much crying in the commentary box. So that is true, it is true. It is no surprise though, because
1: she was welling up. She was very overcome with emotion. So much that I had no idea what she said in the post-race interview, to be honest. But she was very overcome with emotion. And she was saying, you know, that everyone had kind of, it's very hard when you're so young and everyone... Thinks that you're washed up. Yeah. Uh, that she that she you know finally got this uh, result again. Actually, at the race which she kind of made her name in in the first place.
4: Yeah, and we joke, but it was it was emotional. And yeah, at the moment, anyone crying in an interview definitely sets me off. But um, yeah, I think just something we'll delve into more is is the context of that win and the fact that I think she knew exactly what she could do, actually, on that day, not least, because she had that Strava segment the massive sign there confirming it, just to overcome so many setbacks. And I think that's what genuinely gripped us in that moment, was seeing her realise that.
2: We've talked about this off-air, but it's a bit of a tale of redemption Mm. in some cases. Obviously, she's had a tough couple of years. Which
1: is great. She's so young.
2: She She is. I mean, we talk about the fact that, yeah... She felt washed up, but she's only 23. But she came to our attention so uh, so young, didn't she? And, and I think the danger is when some, a cyclist is so young that you think their trajectory is just only going to go upwards from there. And clearly she's had a really tough couple of years, as you said, Becca, with health issues. And you know, there were issues in her team. She felt she wasn't getting raced last year. And I think it's, it's really interesting because it comes at a time when tr- there seems to be a trend more so in men's cycling, but also in women's cycling, we've seen the signing of five kind of eighteen-year-old little Lidl Trek of kind of looking to youth, and but I think you know I, we always see this kind of non-linear kind of trajectory of progression in, in women's cycling in particular. And you know, Anemiek van Vleuten was a case in point a couple of episodes ago. I think it goes goes to show that the team environment, the kind of mental environment of a rider, uh, has so much kind of influence on their perspective on life. And she seems to have uh, really found her feet at uh, Age Insurance.
1: And there was definitely a pressure, wasn't there? Like, like you kind of touched upon, Becca, she had like the Strava segment on, the, on that uh, woolunga Hill. So everyone was really looking to her. So I, I imagine for her also, it was emotional being like, if I'm ever gonna win anything, I've got to win this. Yeah.
4: And I think, going back to what you were referring to there, Denny, is you sign for a team like Movistar in the World Tour ranks, and you think, I mean, what an amazing moment. And everybody's looking at you saying, well, this is the big break. This is it. You're riding with the likes of Annemiek van Vluten, but then you're not fielding races. And I think that is something typical across men's and women's cycling, is that what is perceived to be a rider's biggest career opportunity can unfortunately often stifle them when there's so many talents already in that squad and going back to the setbacks as well i mean how she dealt with that mentally must have been just absolutely massive behind the scenes mustn't it
1: yeah and i was trying to think of other riders that kind of you know have had these moments where they've seemed like they're kind of washed up and kind of come back and got results and it's quite hard. Oh, to find someone who's that young is very hard i think i mean the only person i could re- that really came to mind was like mariana voss which sounds absurd but I, I remember last year i was listening back to kind of our archived uh, episodes of w- when me and Orla and richard were doing the women's tour uh, years ago and we were kind of commenting then you know on you know mariana voss she's kind of overtrained i think it was like 2015 kind of that kind of time She's overtrained and she hasn't got, uh, you know, she's not getting the results and she's had a few injury setbacks and she's just not coming back to the level that she should be, which is total, in hindsight now, is just totally ridiculous that she's, she's come back. And obviously recently she's also been hampered by more surgery and injury. But, you know, she's got so many more results uh, since that. And also Marta Bastianelli. she also had kind of a low time but also was popping babies out. So it's kind of a bit more understandable, but yeah, I was trying to think of other riders who would have been in that situation
4: Yeah, and as you say, it does sound sort of ludicrous, knowing now what she's come back to do, my little boss, I was working with her, and seeing her quite frequently during that time, where she was off the bike, because of course she was able to take media commitments that she wouldn't otherwise have been able to do when she was racing, and you know, that was the narrative, wasn't it It stacked Mm. against her, was that, yeah, she's done she's absolutely done, which, you know is another thing that we see frequently in this sport, which is so negative is just absolutely writing people off overnight despite everything she had done in all the different disciplines she had done it in. but talking about um, sort of specifically young riders, and that narrative of, you know, we keep going back to the quote from Sarah Ducante, don't we, saying, like, washed up, because, you know, just thinking how young she is... We should say that Sarah's quote, not our quote. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 sorry, that's Sarah Ducante's quote about herself, that people were saying that she was washed up. We certainly have not agreed with that (laughs) in any way. I was thinking back, and this shows how long I've I've been in uh, cycling journalism, but, Danny Rowe, Beryl Burton. (laughs) Beryl Burton, (laughs) from my era. No, (laughs) Danny Rowe, no King. Um, I was having to even fact-check on this when I was thinking about this comparison, because, again, it's quite a hard one to believe with everything she's ragged up across the track and road. But in the Olympic cycle coming up to London 2012, some people might remember that she spent two years off the GB cycling squad, and in that time... Was training on her own with that dream that she was going to make it to the home Olympics, and at that point there was—I mean, not only no guarantees that she was going to be in that team pursuit setup, but that narrative was perhaps you—you know—perhaps you're not cutting it, perhaps you're not going to get there. And she had that belief for you know the duration of two years that she could train herself and have enough. Yeah, it just comes back to that that self-belief when nobody else is backing you, but you're saying, do you know what, I know that I've got this in me, I'm not going to give up on that dream and I'm going to keep going, and obviously the rest was history. She came back into the squad, uh, I believe 2010, 2012 secured victory at, at home games, and I think what got me very emotional (laughs) at the end of the Tour (laughs) Down Under was that it transcends sport it truly does because how many of us have been told in our chosen fields or sport or passions outside of that that you just need to give up because it's not going to happen it's too difficult and and for me as well just trying to break into the media and then wanting to be a broadcaster so many people say well everyone wants to do it everyone wants to be a pro cyclist everyone wants to be in front of the camera good luck with that and people do write you off and I think to look at stories like Danny having two years and that must have been tremendously difficult at mm-hmm. points to think, Am I gonna make it? Is all this work gonna pay off? And it and it ultimately did for both of those riders.
2: For me it's partly also a reflection of just how disposable riders are at some time, yeah. at times. You know, they they have short contracts generally. There is a trend now to contracts being slightly longer. But often when you're signed as a Neo Pro you may have one where well, you have two years, maybe three if we're lucky, and it's a very short window in which you need to prove yourself. And it's very tempting for a team to... It must be very tempting to to look at the next generation coming through or a rider that's got the results in the bag from the previous season rather than put faith in a rider that may have had difficulties for a season or two. I think for me it's a lovely story because there, there there must have been a sliding doors moment there where she could easily have not got a contract or things could have worked out slightly differently... And that must happen all the time in cycling. Uh, there are many riders that have never had their moment on Willonga Hill, kind of raising their arms, you know, because they've been dismissed by their team and their mental health's gone on downward down spiral and so on. So. It's. I think for me, it's all, all the more a positive story because of because of that and because of that fragility in the in the cycling world. You know, the, their careers are so short. Yeah, they and need to make it matter. Yeah,
1: it's what I, it's nice to see that you're tearing up as well, Denny. <laughs> as well, I don't know whether it's the the, uh, the couple of pints that you've had or whether it's the, the emotion of the uh, moment. But I can see you getting glassy eyed. But it's interesting actually um, to talk about Sarah Gigante and then talk about whoever, who, well not whoever, we know who won the, the stage before, and that was Cecily Uchert-Ludwig, because it's interesting, because a lot is expected of Cecily Uchert-Ludwig all the time. And I think in some ways she almost has the, the opposite problem, where people are always expecting her to win, but actually she might not be quite the right wa- rider to win as much as people think that she's going to. And so I think people are you know, always delighted when she wins, because she's such a passionate kind of advocate and ambassador for the sport but uh, she doesn't win as much as people think.
2: Maybe she doesn't win as much as you think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe. She, she, she's she's had a few wins. I mean, I think, yeah.
1: I think whenever she's like in that kind of small group and she's going up against the, the likes of Elisa Longo-Borghini and Demi Vollering, whatever, people are always kind of thinking that she... And, you know, it's, it's a bit like what I think with Cassian Evia, Doma as well. Mm. I mean, obviously, Cassian Eviodoma has actually won less than Cecily or Ludwig in recent years, but um, they're both kind of, or have been, punchy riders that people expect a lot from. But actually, there's probably not as many races that is going to suit them, uh, where they're going to be able to get the upper hand on the likes of Demi Vollering or on previous years. And I mean, Van Vlooted, I'm just just justifying <laughs> what I said there. And go, Denny, roll with that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I, I don't know. I don't really know what to say to that. I mean,
1: so you think that she does? She wins as much as you think she should win. Well, I think your point was
2: more that she has a lot of expectation on her. Yeah, you no, that, I think that so. That people expect her to win more than perhaps yes. she does. Yes, yes. Which may be fair, and I guess she's also on a team where she does carry a lot of the leadership mm. responsibilities, and therefore uh, they they pin a lot of hopes on her, which also carries a lot of pressure. But you're right; it is it's different to the situation where. Uh, kind of a rider she, she's not in danger of being flicked by her team at, it, at any moment she's, she has a different kind of pressure um, but t- to answer your point I think <laughs> she, won the, she won the tour of Scandinavia Mm. last year am I right? uh, no, no she to didn't to wrong, win the, God. God. Won oh, the tour of
1: Scandinavia Adamiek van Vleuten won the tour of Scandinavia she terrible. almost she should have won the tour of Scandinavia she should have won it
2: shouldn't she she lost it <laughs> well there we go Maybe <laughs> you're proving my point <laughs> no uh, no
1: she she lost out hmm. by uh, she won two stages but she didn't win uh, overall
2: thank you Rose thank you well <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what to say to that, really.
1: <laughs> we didn't really get to see Cecily utrecht against her usual European rivals, though, did we? Because the, the, the fields that get uh, sent to Tour Down Under are slightly different. Like, You don't have SD Works uh, there. Um, so it's a slightly... So although she got the win, I think that that would mean uh, a lot for her. I don't know whether it means much for the rest of the season, I think, is what I'm also trying to say.
2: No, I mean, I, I, mean, I really enjoy these early season races because they do give you clues and pointers as to what it's going to happen in the season ahead but clearly riders arrive in them in different kind of levels of form you know some may have had good winters some may less so some may be targeting races later on in the season so we can't tell a lot but um, nonetheless I think it's a, it is a good sign for her to get that early win I'm sure it'd be great for a confidence that you're right I don't think we can read too much into it mm. in terms of what she's going to be like when she faces kind of Stiffer competition.
1: And we have seen, obviously, like you said, you know, enjoy the, these uh, early races because you also get a few different names uh, out there. And one of the most catchy names in the peloton has got to be Ninka Vinka, who came second overall. We were actually, before we started recording, having a debate about how to pronounce Ninka. Vinka, but it is Ninka Vinka, isn't it, Becca?
4: You're the commentator. That's I what you would were saying like to say with confidence that I believe, I think it's Ninka Vinka.
1: I've literally since seeing her uh, because it was a very quiet win. Uh, well, not a win, sorry. Quiet second place. It's not like we saw her up there a lot, and there was kind of yeah. a lot of attention was pulled to Sarah Gigante and, and her result. Um, but literally since it happened, it's just like to me, like Ninka Vinka, it's like a winner, winner, chicken dinner. It's so just now, cemented
4: in our mind. When now, I go around it? my
1: house, I'm just thinking like Ninka Vinka, wash the sinker. Nink- i, like, I, I was
4: absolutely <laughs> delighted <laughs> to confirm that that is in fact how you say her name because we enjoy saying it. It just rolls off the tongue so it, well, yes. doesn't it? Ninka Vinka. And wh- what I mean, also a brilliant result. Yeah, I, I was going to say that's, <laughs> that's
1: yeah. But yeah, she's a real young uh, talent, isn't she? I think she's like 90 years old and you know i hope denny that we'll be saying ninka vinka for many ninka vinka i'm trying to think of another one i can't Can't it? What a stinker but that not what a stinker because you did really well but it's just it just stays in my head ninka vinka we need
2: suggestions from listeners about we rhymes. Of ninka vinka
1: i was thinking actually instead of doing cryptic criterium i could do like a, a quiz where it's all based on you have to say Ninka Vinka, then something that rhymes. <laughs> but it, it's in development, listeners. It is in development, I'm trying what? to work out how to do it. But yes, we want more Ninkavinka suggestions. That's absolutely yeah. right.
2: And other names like Ninka Vinka as well. I think more, more yeah, rhyming. More rhyming names. names. Yeah. But anyway, to get back to her actual performance. <laughs> <laughs> would be good, yeah. Yeah, she's only 19, obviously, with uh, DSM, Ferminic post-NL as they're now called. This is, I guess, one of the reasons I love these early season races, because for her, this was a real breakthrough result. She said after the race that she hadn't really had many opportunities to ride for herself as yet. She's only in her second season as a pro, of course. But this was, I think, the team rode for her on that final stage, and uh, she really got to prove herself. She's obviously a bit of a climber. She came seventh in the Tour de l'Avenir last year, performed really well on the mountain stages. But she also has a cyclocross background and she was third in the world's junior ro- road race in Australia. So Australia is obviously a happy hunting ground for her. Mm. She's one of those riders that I guess will now keep tabs on, not just because of her lovely name. <laughs> you know, obviously one to watch in the mountains. She's only 19. And I guess obviously Dutch riders have a, an amazing heritage in women's road racing. So there may be, talking about pressure, it'll be interesting to see whether there's now a bit of pressure from her amongst the Dutch press.
1: I love how she just got a second place at the first race of the season, and Denny's like, pressure, put the pressure on well, her. Come on, Ninka. I mean, you know,
2: I mean, she, she. No,
1: it's part and parcel of being from those nations, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and was, you know, it was a tremendous performance uh, at such a young age. So people will expect a lot of her now. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants they all depend on you no matter the weather emergency or time of day you're the ones who get it done at granger we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies count on real-time product availability and fast delivery call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done
3: don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket
1: Ali Wollaston we we haven't spoken about won the first stage uh, a great sprint for her she is a Kiwi rider a new rider from New Zealand and uh, when she won I was kind of thinking like it's funny that we have this crop of fantastic riders from New Zealand at the moment when you know a kind of 10 years ago there really were hardly uh, any riders at all so that kind of got me thinking and this is something we're going to do all year on the cycling podcast actually a bit of a new thing where we're going to do a mini feature uh, for each each episode with something that's kind of piqued our interest so I went off to find out a bit about why there was suddenly this new generation of New Zealand riders that were all doing so well Uh, you know what the reasons behind and uh, why they weren't there before so have a listen to this.
3: Yeah, at some points, uh, cycling really grows and we get a lot of recognition. At some points, it's quite difficult, to, especially with the racing scene there. I think a few years ago when I went home to New Zealand, no one could really fathom the fact that I could do this for a living. Even now, sometimes I, I go back and I say I'm a cyclist. and they don't really understand. But for sure, I notice as we get more numbers in the professional ranks, people more and more understand what I do. With
1: rolling hills, mild climates and good roads, New Zealand should be a rider's dream. But as SD works's Nee Fisher-Black alludes, for a long time, the distance, both in terms of geography and cycling culture, between New Zealand and the traditional racing heartlands couldn't have been greater. The nation has never landed a podium finish at a senior level World Championships road race. And unlike Neighbours Australia, it's never had a UCI women's team. But right now, there are more Kiwi riders at World Tour level than ever before. Among them, Tour Down Under stage winner Ali Wollaston, Human Powered Health's Henrietta Christie, Ella Wiley of Liv Alula-Jayco, and Michaela Harvey of UAE ADQ. And basically since I
0: was 13, I've been racing the bike doing that. And yeah, I just fell in love with it. And I was doing this scene in New Zealand, which was... It's always been quite small, especially compared to what it's like overseas in Europe. I really, like when I first went to Europe, I really realised how huge cycling is over there compared to New Zealand. So it's always been quite the challenge coming from like small town New Zealand.
1: It was a challenge Michaela's father Patrick met head on. No infrastructure, no problem. And so came about the Black Magic women's cycling team.
0: This was back in 2015, 2016, I think we started. There was a little bit of racing around at a club level, but it was always a few uh, one or two women mixed in with the usually masters men. Yeah, there was basically just club racing. Schools racing is really big in New Zealand, so at least they had that. And then sort of there was a big gap. Well, I suppose it was Michaela what drove it, obviously with being our daughter, but we, we made that decision to put our feet in the water and and form a, a women's team race locally. Interesting enough, once you start to do that it generates more interest and you got more teams getting involved. So that series here locally went from 10 to 15 riders, right the way up to 50 to 60 within a couple of years. So that was really cool locally, but pretty quickly as well, we saw that still wasn't enough. So we needed racing um, overseas. Definitely, when we first got involved, the racing in Australia was really good. So they had a series called the National Road Series. We identified that pretty much straight away. And we went there in our first year and we turned up from a race here where we have maybe 20, 30 riders, and we went to Australia and there was 100 women on the start line so it was like wow this is awesome
1: training and racecraft are a small part of Patrick's vision more important is exposing young kiwi talent to races on a bigger stage with all roads ultimately leading back to Europe
0: so if we can get riders to Europe and get them exposed and and what we, we hope you know we send maybe eight riders across even if we get two or three of them that they have that light bulb moment and they go wow this is an amazing sport it's so exciting I love it that's what we're trying to ignite, if you like. That's what happened with, I suppose, my Michaela, Neve, um, Kim Kurtzell Kim recently, like she was a great example. I saw her at a local race, once again, like 10, 15 people. And I thought, oh man, she's talented. She's from our local area. And she was a triathlete and was just dabbling in it. And I said, hey, there is actually this career opportunity. You can actually become a professional in this and, she, and I could see even then she had a light bulb, light bulb moment and then we got her across to, with us to Australia and then with Torelli and a couple of things in um, Europe and then yeah, that's where she's gone, has driven her passion even further.
1: Kim Kadzow is now at EF Education Canada team battling it out against Annemiek van Fluten and Cecily Richard Ludwig at the Tour of Scandinavia last year there's an undeniable growth of Kiwi talent. But even a decade ago, homegrown New Zealand racers were thin on the ground. Joe Kisanovsky was one of the few who made it, despite no clear pathways or permanent funding, enjoying an 11-year career on the road, riding for teams like TIBCO.
5: I went to the US first, um, and I was a track racer first, and then I um, yeah, started doing crits while I was over there, um, just you know it was something else to do um, along with the track racing Um, and then after a couple of summers in the US I got my first pro contract um, for a road team. It was just racing in the US and then it wasn't until a couple of years into that that I went over to Europe and it's actually kind of a cool story it was um, Sarah Ulmer um, who was you know definitely somebody i was looking up to when i was racing um and i got to race with her um, on the national team and so there was a few of us and um we had this idea that um we wanted to go to europe and you know show that we could be a national team um racing in the world cups so i think there was like some deal like that if we got in the top 25 at a World Cup then we would get funding for the next year we had to prove that we you know could race with the world's best and I think we got like I I remember I got in the top 25 I got like 23rd or something and then and I think Sarah got like 20 seconds. It was something like this, so we were just like ecstatic because we were like, oh my gosh, we're going to be able to race here next year. It was such a cool thing that we did and um, we we got national team funding and we, you know, did all the big World Cups um, in 2004 over there. And yeah, so that's how it kind of started. And then I got my first European pro team after Athens, so in 2005.
1: Despite the highs when opportunities came her way, Kisanovsky's time away from home as a young racer wasn't without challenges.
5: Not many people, yeah, could do it how I did it. I think you know uh, when I did it, and that's why because it was quite daunting. Um, yeah, it was not easy for sure. You know, back then, the first year that I went to the states, so ninety nine two thousand. You know, and literally like I would have to do like you know payphone um, like on the corner somewhere, like you know collect calls back to New Zealand. But even when I was on my first Italian team, I would have to go to like the bookstore in the little Italian village where I was living and ask them if I could plug in my laptop to use their dial-up so I could check my AOL. You know, you tell like, you know, your nieces and nephews or even, even my girls on the team, you tell them that and they'll be like, what the hell, how old are you?
3: You know.
1: <laughs> now though, as the community of Kiwi riders grows in Europe, cyclists can enjoy more of a home away from home.
3: Definitely when I sort of followed Michaela into a big learn things, we had already a lot of camaraderie just as fellow Kiwis. But also I think anyone can say between their, their national teammates, they have competition and in a nice way because obviously we've also been teammates. Um, yeah, so it's um, nice to have each other in the bunch these days. There are still challenges. This can't be overlooked. National
1: funding is structured around Olympic sports and there's lots of red tape involved in organising bike races in New Zealand. However, what can't be understated is the influence that live streams of races has had in bringing the sport to a new audience of potential young racers on the other side of the world.
3: You often see it, in in, in all factors of life, you know, if if you see one person do it, then it's sort of like it, it opens something in your mind that it's possible. And I think um, for me, definitely, I saw people like Georgia Williams and Michaela Harvey that that they could do it, and so. Then I thought, ah, so I can do it. At one point it may seem impossible, but yeah, I think the more of us that do it, it makes people realise
0: that it is possible.
1: And this current crop of elite Kiwi riders hasn't forgotten the pathway that helped them on their journey to the World Tour.
0: I mean, you know the sport really well. It's a hard sport, it's a really hard sport, so it's got lots of ups and downs. So um, seeing them when they have their good moments and um, cherishing those and, um, being able to sort of share in that excitement as well. Like, we're really lucky with the likes of Neve, Michaela, Kim, um, Ella, and, and so on, that they, they always sort of come back and talk to
1: us and share with our riders their experience, and that's really cool too. New Zealand's physical distance from the racing heartlands of Europe won't ever change, but social media has brought them closer than ever before. Great that, 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 that people can, you know, look up to their
5: idols, you know, like Need Fisher-Black and Michaela and Henry and Ali and, you know, whoever else is racing at the moment. Yeah, it's just great that they can, you know, follow along and, and obviously have that as a dream, that they can be a pro cyclist and you can actually make it a, you
1: know, a viable career. that was the first of this year's little mini feature from the cycling podcast feminine which we're going to hopefully uh, do every month a bit of a deep dive maybe I'm selling it too much to say deep dive shallow dive into uh, (laughs) a particular kind of topic that uh, piqued our interest but that was about New Zealand uh, rides and the thing the overall message I think that really came through to me that sort of surprised me was that The great thing that these New Zealand riders have benefited from was not kind of a a better pathway, though, of course, Patrick Harvey's doing great things at Black Magic Women, nor is it cheaper flights or more financial backing, but it's more more the inspiration it's the fact that the riders can actually watch and watch on demand uh, all of these races they can actually see that there's a pathway a career that there are there is a peloton of hundreds of of female riders that are racing at the top level and that kind of just made me think how important it is that we yeah keep pushing for like you know live race coverage and you know professional decent race coverage as well
4: Yeah, I think that really struck me, actually, is the fact that it seems like something not even worth talking about sometimes, but actually became the biggest factor, didn't it? Like, you feel like the world's getting smaller. And I think something we've also nodded to earlier in the podcast is that we are seeing such young riders signed by the World Tour teams now, and you do forget the really obvious things. Like, they you know, especially from that part of the world, are going into an environment away from every family Mm. member, every friend, and they're plunging into, you know, sometimes teams that are speaking a different language entirely. And I think it's easy to underestimate how, if I think back to being, you know, a 20-year-old and how I might have felt, if you said, right, to pursue your profession, you are going to have to leave everything you know. Mm. And things like the ability to FaceTime or, you know, WhatsApp call, video call, whatever, that, you know, so many resources now to actually be able to keep in touch and you know collectively we know how hard we have pushed for so long to have better race coverage and it's clearly making it's clearly making the difference isn't it
2: there still aren't huge amounts of riders from new zealand no, in, the, no. in the professional peloton they have to say that but i also wonder i mean whether the language does play a role as well you know increasingly one of the, you know it's very obvious when i went to the tour de france fan with you Rose, You were there, Becca, too, of course. Uh, (laughs) Last summer, you know, it's an English-speaking peloton, and that must help enormously as well Mm. as a rider from New Zealand. You haven't got to overcome the same language hurdles that other riders may have to overcome.
1: But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I did actually mention, we didn't put it in the feature, but I did uh, speak to Patrick Harvey about that. Like, you know, what is the big difference between New Zealand and Australia? Mm. And, you know, he said... You know, Australia, they've had a really funded, well-funded national program for many, many years, which turned into then the kind of uh, Orica, Jayco thing that it is now, Team Bike Exchange team that it is now. And, you know, they most often field a very Aussie-focused team. And obviously some Kiwi riders have benefited from that in the past. But, you know, that's how they're getting uh, a number of Australian riders competing uh, in Europe where all the big races are.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that, that program helps and obviously I know that in the past um, the Australian Institute of Sport have kind of funded riders to mm. race abroad and get exposure with other teams and riders and races and so on. I mean obviously New Zealand have a great track record on the track. Yeah, uh, yeah. they were second in the team suit just in Glasgow a few months ago. But interestingly I think it was only Ali Wollaston who's kind of a prominent rider in the in the World Tour. Uh, so you know, that and I did
1: I did actually look up Ali Wollaston's route because she wasn't a black magic woman uh, person right and she, she her school has a world-class velodrome in its backyard wow. so no surprise that she became a, a track rider
2: talking of black magic cycling as well I was just also struck by some of the brilliant names of some of the teams <laughs> I was looking at their the, <laughs> well, look at the results from uh, the gravel and tar La Femme, which is or La Femme, which is the only UCI road race in New Zealand. And amongst the teams, apart from Black Magic Women's Cycling, were Green Monkey uh, and Black Dirt Collective. So I don't know. I mean, oh, I, they're
1: good, think, aren't they? Yeah. They're so, all colours, though.
2: They are colours. I mean, obviously black is the, the kind of I guess. Yeah, the, I guess the, the, the New the Zealand colour yeah, of the national the team. But blacks, anyway, yeah. top marks for team names
1: the the ninka vinka team is
2: <laughs> to
1: be uh or the chicken the winner winner chicken dinner team that's even better um the be.
4: theme of the podcast i haven't done any extensive research into fun names sorry Denny. <laughs> sorry rose um but um i think yeah something we are actually having a little chimwag off pod about um was the fact that sometimes a track squad um, when it comes to Olympic development can be so prominent but actually beyond that if you're not in that like mentioning Danny earlier if you're not in that that setup for the track um, it's sort of where do you go from there and I think sometimes we think that the progression is perhaps better than it is but as you say Australian cycling is just so you know, world renowned, isn't it? They've got such Mm. good development. Um, But I've closely followed the progression of Zwift Academy and I've been sort of covering that since the first year it took place, and everyone had their heads turned and said, "Wow! Like seriously, this is what the culmination of this is—that you get to step straight into the world tour, having put out amazing power data, and that's what you win at the end of it." You know, and Ella, Har- Ella Harris is a Kiwi rider who came yeah, through that, didn't she? and Ella—and as you say, Ella Harris won that, stepped stepped into Canyon Tram and what that has done has been huge for riders from that part of the world and sort of segueing on to Australian cycling I interviewed Neve Bradbury when she won Swift Academy and it was the first time and again it sounds so obvious saying it back now but at the time it, it wasn't something I'd given a huge amount of thought to and she said the biggest thing is you know everything is happening in Europe and imagine mm-hmm. and she again a very young rider at the time when she was well, still very young but when she won it even younger and so Saying how daunting a prospect it is for a teenager to say, well, how do I get the Palmares that's going to turn the heads of the World Tour team if I can't even field races in in Europe? And that's um, why I think we've seen so much success from that part of the world, New Zealand and Australia, in, I guess... um, just prioritising, actually targeting Swift Academy as their route over over to, to Europe and the world tour.
1: And there are also those other the methods that have also come across, but it's all part of that kind of notion of the world becoming a little bit smaller and a bit more connected, mm. isn't it? That you also have kind of the Canyon SRAM generation team that is finding riders from, you know, Jamaica, Rwanda, Sierra Leone, uh, so and also, important. you know, riders that don't have the normal pathways in Europe to find these talents and uh, you know help them come come through uh, have a development team that they wouldn't have in their own um, countries which is key now another thing also that um, Patrick Harvey touched upon was also kind of the lack of racing that there is uh, in New Zealand and you know he also said to me that that is one of their probably their greatest challenge is Trying to hold these races, and there's a lot of regulation in New Zealand, and it's expensive, and people don't want to have their roads closed. And that's kind of also just um, demonstrating, also, a kind of a global trend, isn't it? It's really hard for uh, races to uh, continue on in a really difficult climate where there isn't the money. Uh, Washing around, I wish there was ever money swashing around, but you know there there really isn't at the moment, and that's kind of one thing that we've seen with Sweet Spot, who are the organisers uh, of the women's tour. We just had it announced last week. I think that they were entering um, liquidation and admitting admitting that its liabilities are likely to extend way past one million pounds which obviously uh, to put it mildly puts the women's tour particularly this year in a very 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 bleak position Denny, I know you've been following uh, this story uh, very closely. Actually, part of you know being part of British Continental, it's obviously a key part of your calendar. Not to make it, I know it makes me sound like you're just sitting at home all time waiting for a bike race to happen. But what I mean is, that's
2: exactly you... what happens. <laughs>
1: <first>. <laughs> but you'll you'll understand how key it is for not just the obviously. It's, we'll we'll get on in a minute about how key it is for women's cycling to have the women's tool, but how key Sweet Spot as an organization uh, has been to uh cycling in the uk
2: pretty much i mean beyond and i'm going to get that the name it. is it marathon events that run yeah. ride london but yeah. beyond them and uh Colin clues uh, a man who organizes the rutland melton cycle classic it's a 1.2 uh men's race which is a brilliant race in its own right but beyond mm-hmm. beyond that sweet sport have been the UCI race organisers in the UK for many, many, many years now and not only that, they've organised the tour series set of Criteriums which has been on uh, terrestrial television so they've been absolutely fundamental to bringing road racing to a British TV audience bringing road racing to the streets engaging young fans and providing a showcase for, for, for cycling in the UK with Sweet Spot kind of on the edge it, it's, it, things do look quite bleak uh, at the UCI level for, for British road racing. It will only be if if the women's tour and that, if, there is still an if. if the but women's Where tour does the doesn't if come go,
1: for, from their Denny? Because obviously if the Sweet Spot is in liquidation, you know who would take up the mantle to... Yeah, so awesome? from what I
2: understand, so Sweet Spot own the rights to the women's tour brand but the, talking to people behind the scenes, the dates are still there for the women's road race in the UCI calendar. There's nothing to stop another race organizer, British Cycling, coming forward to try and put on another race. And I know British Cycling have said publicly that that's what they're trying to do to try and make that happen. But of course, we're only we're only six months away. Uh, it's the 5th of June is when it's supposed to start. So there isn't long to get venues in place, sponsors in place, all the logistics you'd need in place to to organise a you know a women's world tour event with all the requirements that you'd need for that. So it's a big ask I you'd think but talking to people behind the scenes things aren't completely kind of written off at this stage and I guess we'll hear in the coming days and weeks whether anything will happen on that front but in terms of the impact I mean yeah I've been talking to some of the British teams we've got six UCI continental women's teams now in, in the UK two two new ones this year another Hess cycling of switched licenses so uh, have been added to the to the Canon and talking to I spoke to Bob Lyons who manages the Alba Road development team one of the new UCI continental teams about the impact it would have on British road racing I mean for him you know I think what he was saying was that that's a big part of your conversations when you're when you're trying to get sponsorship when you're trying to attract funding you, you mentioned the women's talk but you mentioned the fact that you might be able to race that be on TV get all that exposure without that around that I mean he, he said it so he's okay because he wasn't sure he would get a spot this year but for some teams who were maybe banking on getting a spot it could be verging on catastrophic not having that kind of exposure particularly if you've got agreements with sponsors that and so on so it's not looking good domestically particularly because we've documented it on the british continental a lot but because the domestic scene is struggling at the moment so that's not great but i mean lizzie has also said that it's not great generally for women's cycling Mm -hmm. The Olympics is not long after the women's tour so it would have been a good preparation race for that and obviously well as you both know because you've been long involved in this you know the women's tour had aspirations at one point to become the biggest race on the women's calendar Uh, and and it was well respected and well run and it would be a, a big loss.
1: It is so well regarded and has been for so long it was actually funny when I was like looking up on when the first one was. The first one was in 2014, but they've only had eight editions. But the impact that that race has had is huge, isn't it, uh, Rebecca? know, obviously, you've worked on it for many years um, and uh, and have seen firsthand about you know how much you know it really holds such a great place in the minds of the riders that race in it because it was kind of a very early adopter of kind of being. Professional, which sounds like a really stupid thing to say, but in terms of you know having uh, it's it things like having female you know port-a-loos in the you know paddock area where the buses are, and having space and room, and getting the school kids out on the on the roads to come and watch, and having the safety elements, it was all.
4: Before it's time uh, in that way. It doesn't sound stupid at all. It's an absolute game changer in that respect. And I'm going to get all emotional again now. Um, <laughs> like, as you said, that this is one really, really close to my heart because I um, had the great privilege of hosting the TV coverage on ITV for many years. I also... Um, you know, when it comes to working closely with Sweet Spot, I was the lead reporter for the Tour of Britain. I worked again for the ITV TV coverage of the tour series. And I saw the story Rebecca does she's available to for. Touch <laughs> me about. No, um, but I think, jokes aside, I was so close to mm. the decisions that they were making at Sweet Spot. And when Ovo Energy came on board and we saw parity and prize money and they came out and said, right, we are matching the, the prize funds for the Tour of Britain. And it was really significant. And I know you were sort of saying, you know, it sounds, again, crazy to allude to it, but that professionalism was unparalleled at the time. And that's what, that's what they bought to the racing and I think it would be very easy for me as such a fan of that race to sort of be biased and to say oh no it was definitely the pinnacle but it was it undoubtedly mm. was and as you say interviewing riders off the record when they're away from any tv cameras would always say the women's tour is the most professionally organised respectful race things that nobody else thinks about like we might need to go to the toilet in the start village you know that was all catered for Prize money being a huge talking point, and yeah, they they did it so so well. The riders wanted to come and race it, and we saw you know the best bike riders in the world. Well, it was, I mean, race. the first
1: one was was the first winner was Mariana Voss, and yeah. Lizzie Dynan, Elisa Longo Borghini, Demi Vollering. I mean, I mean, these huge. are riders not that you know it isn't the most uh, you know big mountain pass type uh, race, but you know it always attracted the best riders but i do feel a little bit like it was very hard for it i think also with obviously they say you know a rising tide lifts all boats you know having the tour de france fam come on the scene um, obviously that's not to do with anything to do with uh, necessarily sweet spots problems it's very hard for it to have its own place and identity when you know, it can't necessarily offer those huge alpine passes, which is now, say even six years ago, it wasn't really, um, a, you know, a big deal. People weren't demanding these huge climbs in races. And oh, obviously there are big climbs in the UK, but not necessarily the ones that will also want to host the women's tour. Also struggles a little bit with its identity or what it can offer riders, especially as the big riders in the world are becoming big climbers. Obviously we did have more of that, like the Welsh, big Welsh mountain passes, but in the early days it was quite... Flat really, wasn't
4: it? Well, I mean, if I'd been racing, it would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> <guess>. <laughs> I was going to say like Just when the i was growing up, I absolutely aspired you know to having a race opportunity like that so it would have been great for me to be <laughs> <field> at the <laughs> cyclopark I mean, yeah if it stopped there that would have been good for me you've really hit the nail on the head talking about the caliber of riders it attracted mm. and that really was testament to what was going on behind the scenes wasn't it that actually yeah the amount of respect for it w- was absolutely there
2: and okay yeah it didn't have a kind of the variety of parkour that you might get in the Tour de France Femme or the Giro Donne but uh, nonetheless it did provide you know some really great racing and oh, yeah. and yeah. there was scope for that to, to evolve and I think actually maybe that would have become or could become if, it, if, if a race on those dates continues it's niche we don't want all races to, be, to look alike so I think mm. I think that from that perspective in terms of the terrain it was covering I think that's fine as long as you can find a way to kind of engineer exciting races which is down to the riders as much as the terrain sometimes anyway as we know so yeah I mean it will be it would be a huge loss if it disappears so fingers crossed it remains
1: yes we are all hoping uh, that someone will swoop in and save it or maybe you know it's it's off for now and and comes back on in the future but um, I think it would be really sad to it's also hard seeing that obviously it was on hiatus last year it's very, it is kind of very rare for a race to do a genuine hiatus that isn't kind of related to a global epidemic let's say um and then still come back we kind of saw that with tour of california it kind of had high hi- hiatus and then it never came back but we shouldn't you know finish on that kind of glum <laughs> note and actually um <laughs> there were there are you know we are getting now into uh, the racing season aren't we on the horizon we've got the likes of Omloop, where we kind of finally see all those riders that have been, well, I guess, well, I guess because on Instagram you get to see what everyone's doing all the time, don't you? That you can't ever believe it. I guess is the, the problem. But we do actually finally get to see, you know, how the likes of SD Works are faring.
2: Yeah, no, loads to look forward to. I mean, this is the. Uh... I think this is one of my favourite parts of the season actually, just because there's so much anticipation. Dare I say it speculation. Deli, you said a minute
1: ago that your favourite part was the very early races. Now you're saying it's just the slightly early races, then next month it will I be. I think the I said mid-races. it's one of
2: one of the favourite my favourite oh, okay, parts of the season. Okay. I think they're all my favourites <laughs> really. But uh, <laughs> No, I mean I think I think well this is the time when you've kind of you've gone through the winter, there's been no racing. You've yes. been Lamenting the lack of racing on TV and okay you might have been watching the cyclocross or whatever else is on but really you just is, wanted but, the yeah. road racing to come on and then by the end of the season you're like crikey there's so many races on all the time I can't wait for it to stop I need a break <laughs> 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 well this is like this is like a new year's when you start the new year and you've got resolutions uh, you've you've made and things are going well and you've got all this hope and anticipation for the future that's uh, that's how i'm feeling right now
1: well i mean that's a fantastic sell for the cycling podcast come with
4: us on denny's emotional roller coaster <laughs> through
3: the season this is a
4: highly emotionally charged uh, podcast is. i'm um, going to blame you Beck for the almost new summer. year but not new year um I, I i don't believe we've actually mentioned this yet today it's an olympic year <laughs> yes of course how have we not mentioned this yet I feel like that's my cliche that I've been rolling out in everything uh, lately but I do think that it's a really interesting one loads of riders were saying and sort of team managers were saying how people are coming into the likes of the Tour Down Under pinging way more than any other season and Y- you've got riders that, again, looking at Olympic, people that are looking to where they might be around the summertime of the Olympics. So I think it is even more amazing to see people absolutely on fire very early on in the year with a view to maintaining that and peaking even more later on in the year. But it is an exciting time of the year, very emotional time. Apparently, <laughs> <of the year. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> to just throw that in. Um, but I'm excited. But I also think that, um, this you know the prevalence of social media it's just getting more and more and more in terms of seeing what people are doing in training but we don't know until we see them race if mm. you look at my instagram i'm ready <laughs> i'm ready um for some cycling, which is definitely not the case I, I
1: have witnessed you becca get dressed up then walk to the
4: end of the road uh, stand with your bike oh, have a photo take hang on those when did this happen it's not I just I wanted to refute this oh great ride fantastic really uh, really put true? in a good or are you effort? making that
1: up might be what I, maybe what I heard from this is what you perceived heard. my Instagram to yes today. maybe just no I own. have ridden my bike a few times this new year just for my own self esteem well anyway uh, Becca thank you very much for joining us um, and I'm sure we'll see you in the very local vicinity to Wandsworth <laughs> soon McDonald's. <laughs> in McDonald's, uh, there are other fast food Uh, outlets available I I do think actually that I will I'm going to make a Google map of all the places that we've our little Tour de Wandsworth Denny I'm going to make a little map (laughs) and and McDonald's will get a special mention uh, on that of all the places that we've gone and probably all the ones what about all the ones that we did at the Tour de France as well if I can remember them I'll put them all on a a Google map that everyone can follow we are on Instagram uh, everybody so do go and find the cycling podcast Uh, on there yes but thank you very much Becca I hope that wasn't too torturous for you thank
4: you so much for having me
1: it. oh and thank you Denny of course
2: no thank you I mean I didn't get the introduction Becca got at the beginning I just have to say that now no no but that's okay I'm getting used to that
1: No, no. yeah okay so okay no, you've heard it here. I'm going to make Denny. I'm going to give you a huge introduction next
2: time. Right. Well, I look forward <laughs> to
1: embarrassing. that.
2: Embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no way. I hold you to that. But anyway, um, no, no. I mean, it's been a lovely episode. Uh, we should continue. We should definitely go to uh, the Telegraph Pub, <laughs> oh. which is I'm, which is the closest pub to the highest point in Wandsworth. So it would be like our little Alp duess. In fact, oh, the highest point in Wandsworth is in call, is indeed called uh, the Putney Alp. Which is on is it? In Putney
1: Heath, yeah. Wow, there you go. We'll find us uh, there next time. Thank you for joining us, everybody.
2: The cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney.